HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Bob Valgenti. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our summer 2022 issue, now available online, explores the themes of borders and boundaries, featuring articles on migrant experiences, food imaginaries, and practices of provisioning through food rearing and preservation. Join us over the next couple of weeks as we talk with authors. And remember to subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guest this week is India Louise Hayes, a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Rutgers University. Her work examines the sensory knowledge production of Afro-Texan women in the 19th and 20th centuries as they navigate everyday social and cultural tensions. India's work spans historical sociology, the sociology of culture, and Africana and cultural studies. Her essay in the most recent issue of Gastronomica is entitled, Leave No Stone Unturned, Sustainable Belonging and Desirable Futures of African-American Food Imaginaries. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's begin. Uh, Perhaps you can share with us, India, uh, and tell our audience a little bit more about your scholarly work in general and what led you to this particular project. Yeah, thank you. So overall, my work is interested in these very intimate ways that um, Black Southern folks, particularly Black Southern women, are creating knowledge and using that knowledge to better whether it be their living situation, how they connect with each other, how they create community, how they collaborate together to find pleasure, um, how they collaborate together to find um, joyfulness, excitement, all these different 
um, means of living, right? And different means of sociality that are directly tied and very intimately tied to the flesh, um, very intimately tied to the body. And uh, my co-author and I, Nora McKendrick, who is the, she's an associate professor at Rutgers Sociology as well. We both came to this project um, in a way bridging our own interests. So I'm interested in these intimate ways that knowledge is produced across the Black South. And Nora's work is really about food study um, and a little bit about food study and gender and how those things are in relation to one another. And we found really interesting and provocative Black food scholarship that was coming out in the few, um, coming out in the past couple of years that was talking about these very intimate relationships to land through which Black folks and Black Southern folks, particularly here, African-Americans, navigate their daily life, right? Mm -hmm. Creative food, um, creative food histories and food legacies that we're still building on today. And we found that there is a, a very interesting connection and relation to all of these works that we really wanted to pick up on and that we really wanted to use in response to the alternative food the alternative food movement and the types of scholarship that were coming out of that particular uh, tradition of food studies. Okay, yeah. So, so uh, you know, so just to focus a little bit on that idea of knowledge production, because mm -hmm. it's a it's an incredibly rich idea and it allows us to think about how individuals and groups of individuals are connected. Uh, I'm kind of quoting Lisa Heltke here, not only mm -hmm. through head work, that is through intellectual work to create knowledge, but how bodily knowledge and, and right. trans the transmission of cultural ideas and practices are also part of that development of certain knowledges. And food studies is always working across various disciplines. So could you say a little bit more about where you direct your research, because it seems that you are building upon a body of uh, food studies scholarship that's already already exists, but are you also delving into historical records or into more historical texts or even uh, verbal accounts of the kinds of uh, histories of knowledge that you're that you're exploring? Right. So. A little bit. So I will say in my dissertation, yes, um, as far as particular archives, um, the way that knowledge is produced through sounds, such as moans, um, is very something that's very important to my own work. In this article specifically, we were more interested in the synthesis of what has Black food studies done um, and what are the what is the overall theme of action, the theme of knowledge creation that is emerging from all of these texts. And that in particular, of course, surrounded food, but we we're interested in how food was emerging as this um, material through which knowledge production was being cultivated, um, the different ways, the different entrances through which food became like that material upon which knowledge production was being written. Right. So for some figures, um, it was political as food was a political weapon. Right. If I'm quoting Fannie Lou Hamer mm -hmm. for um, Carver and Lewis, food became a way of sustaining um, 
sustaining joy and sustaining the traditions of Southern food. And for Carver specifically, food was a way that one could um, navigate and re-navigate um, poor land that was given. Um, food was a, a form of education that poor Black Southern folks could hold. Okay, so so yeah, your essay delves into three important figures in the, in the history that you're trying to uh, forward and in many ways uh, reintroduce uh, to the world. So this all begins, as you had briefly mentioned, uh, with a critique, and that is mm-hmm. uh, a critique of what you describe as a Eurocentric history of sustainable foodways and how that history has been understood and per- perpetuated as the dominant one that we understand about where our sort of uh, alternative food systems take their origin. So I'm curious uh, if you could say a little bit about a little bit about this critique, but also uh, I'm interested in whether this was the point of departure for your work or if this was something that you discovered as you were looking through uh, the scholarship about African-American foodways. Mm, right. So we, so um, as you were saying, we begin this essay by critiquing the alternative food move, movement, which across the early 2000s, going into, I think maybe the early 2010s, the alternative food movement would make, in particular, I think prominent scholars within this more mainstream um, food movement would make particular um, very sweeping statements and very generalized statements that America didn't have a um, didn't have gastronomic roots, right? That we just jumped right into food, into fast food, and that has been our defining food culture, right? Not only here in the states, but across the globe, right? Everyone knows America for its fast food, and if we are going to engage food histories or culinary histories in the United States, that's going to come from Italy or France, right? If you watch. Um, I don't know, I'm a big Food Network cooking channel mm-hmm. person. Sure. And all you see, even on Netflix, right, you have this Iron Chef Legends um, that's come out and all of these really notable chefs and uh, food writers are talking about, um, you know, French cuisine, French tradition, these Italian traditions. So we are drawing from Europe when we talk about these more high-end, sophisticated means of creating food, of um, restaurants, of you know, alternative, you know, this alternative food movement, uh, alternative food movement. Excuse me. And what was interesting is that in these general statements, and um, I will say, Nora is more of an expert on the alternative food movement. Mm-hmm. That and. So as Nora is the expert on alternative food movement, I'm also, my first, my master's paper was actually about um, Black folks' relationship to food um, and that relationship that was beginning from the plantation. And I was, I think, I know I was aware of the particular, and in the essay we call these damage-centered, and quoting E. Tuck, these damage-centered narratives about the South. Um, I'm from Texas. I'm a Southern girl. Um, when you talk about America's or the U.S.'s most unhealthy cities, a lot of them are found in the South, right? You think about Southern foodways. You think about biscuits and gravy, fattiness and carbs. And so you have these two conflicting narratives 
where, you know, Black food traditions are saying there's this really beautiful richness um, to what we're creating with food. And on the other hand, you have the alternative food movement, which is saying we actually don't have a food history. And we use this essay to bring those two conversations that are in tension with one another and say there is a very fascinating food history that America, and I'll say the U.S., is building from um, and building off from. And it's not Eurocentric, right? Um, It is uh, Indigenous. It is African-American. It is Latinx, right? It is made up of folks of color who are engaging with and have been engaging with land and using food as a means of care and community for centuries. Yeah, so... What what struck me as I was reading the essay and, and the wonderful way that you set up the discourse uh, about food imaginaries is that we get a sense that this uh, that the the manufactured I think is the proper word the manufactured history of sustainable foodways is one that is not only defined as we might say predominantly white and predominantly middle class or upper middle class but it's also one that's very much defined by technology in the sense that it is it is a response to an industrialized food system and so it identifies the problem as a technological one when Mm -hmm. your essay i think very powerfully shows us that it's a problem that stretches out into issues of culture and class Mm -hmm. and race and ethnicity and so this is where that central feature of your work, that, that notion of the imaginary, I think, comes into its, its greatest form. So it's a term that many people might not be familiar with. So could you maybe first explain to us what you mean by an imaginary and then how these food imaginaries become a way to propose an alternative history of sustainable foodways? Of course. So imaginaries are these ways through which knowledge so for Nora and I we wanted to name how knowledge was being collaboratively created and often you know I was when we were writing this I love thinking about imagination and how imagination is this tool Um, and Robin Kelly talks a little bit about this but how imagination becomes this tool through which one can consider and create through the impossible and through impossible situations, social relations, um, classes and racism, sexism, so on and so forth. And if you can imagine a world beyond your own, you can create it. And we wanted to use that take on imagination and turn it towards imaginaries to describe this very um, social social way in which knowledge was being created. And I think in the essay, we talk about imaginaries as strategizing and shaping action. And it's this collaborative means of creating knowledge. Um, and then it allows the community to respond to what's going on around them, right? To reconceptualize their relationship to what it means to live, what it means to belong. And for um, the Southern African-American folks uh, who are in community with George Washington Carver, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Edna Lewis, 
um, imaginaries become um, a way to speak to shared lived experiences and how you can um, how you can use a very ordinary and daily engagement with something like food in order to create a, a greater means of sustaining a community and sustaining already neglected and marginalized bodies. And through there, Imaginaries allows us to reconceptualize and to broaden, I think, our approach to what knowledge looks like and how knowledge is created, particularly for those who, let's say, um, they weren't going straight to pen and paper, right? Um, unlike, you know, an academic or um, someone who may write and teach for a living, we can go straight to writing into our books, right? But for folks who are more concerned with, how, this is how I'm living on a day-to-day -day basis, it's important that knowledge then becomes materialized in a particular form. And this is where food becomes necessary, right? Because then food tackles the, what is assumed to be the impossibility of Black food and Black bodies, right? Yeah. Food becomes a way that one can uh, reorganize and reimagine their relationship to themselves, right? In ways that the South and Black bodies throughout the South are no longer damage-centered, right? They are no longer um, unhealthy. They are no longer neglected or lack refinement, right? But they have a very their own rich uh, means on a day-to-day -day basis of saying, okay, here's how I'm loving and caring for you through, let's say, this nice flake, flaky biscuit I made, right? Mm -hmm. That was passed down from my grandmother, from her grandmother, from her mother, right? So on and so forth. So, so I mean, there's this wonderful way in which I think, and we'll get to this, I think, uh, when we talk about some of the, the particular figures, but focusing upon food here helps us to understand how something that is material is never simply a material thing when it's immersed in human culture because it's always connected to our ideas and most importantly the ideas we have about ourselves and our communities and and what meanings they carry and likewise that what is maybe you know simply conceptual or imaginary is never that because our ideas are always body embodied and the stories that motivate us are always about ideas that inspire us to kind of go beyond what's there uh, right now in, in our material limitations. So it's kind of in that interweaving between the, the imaginaries and, and, the, and the material that I want to uh, perhaps uh, get you to tell us about the three you know, amazing and uh, central figures uh, that are part of your work. So before we go there, I think we're at a point uh, where we can take a short break and then we'll return uh, to, to speak with our author some more about these food imaginaries. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 
818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tahona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best tasting, highest quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing. I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org/donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti talking with India Louise Hayes about her new article Leave No Stone Unturned, Sustainable Belonging, and Desirable Futures of African-American Food Imaginaries, now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. So just before the break, we were talking about food imaginaries and hinting at some of the influential historical figures who helped to shape some of these. So India, I'm wondering if you could share with us uh, the three central figures uh, that are at the heart of your essay. Yes. So the three figures that we touch upon are George Washington Carver, Fannie Lou Hamer, and her Freedom Farms Cooperative, and last but not least, Edna Lewis. So could you tell us about the importance of each uh, for reimagining the past and, of course, the future of sustainable food systems? Mm, Yeah. So between Carver, Hamer, and Lewis, there is such an abundant amount of scholarship um, from Monica White to uh, Rafia Zafar to Tony Tipton Martin and others who have been impacted by these legacies. And we wanted to um, pay tribute to their work and the work that they have done already on these figures, but also, again, highlight the role that. Um, Food Imaginaries is playing for each of these figures, right? So it's a bit of conversation between these texts and um, the synthesis that's going on, or this through line of Food Imaginaries that we see happening throughout um, uh, scholarship on these figures. And so each figure approaches food um, 
and need for food and desire for food in different ways. Uh, one of the things that we were really struck by um, for George Washington Carver, and I think Carver is someone that um, I remember growing up, we had Black History Month and George Washington Carver was always one of the folks who was, you know, there, um, one of the figures that we discussed. And we always talked about, oh, you know, he did this really cool thing with the peanuts, right? 300 uses for the peanuts. But Carver did so much more, right? For Carver foods, um, Carver's food imaginary was built around crop education for those who are living in these rural areas. And these rural areas um, following um, following the dispersal of um, African-Americans into this really bad land, right? Um, it wasn't tilled, it, it was like land that nobody wanted. Right. But now, um, you know, the formerly enslaved, um, now free African-Americans needed somewhere to go. Right. They weren't given the good land. They're given really bad land. And Carver uses uh, food imaginaries to reconfigure um, black folks relationship to land. Right. And I think it, I think that's definitely like multi-level for sure. Um, right. But. Carver does all these really amazing things um, as far as holding cooking classes, um, developing the Jessup Wagon, which is this, uh, which is supposed to be like this mobile learning center to where he could travel and teach folks about this is a land that you're given. This is the way in which you can make um, it fruitful once more uh, for yourself, for your own economic sustainability. And Carver viewed himself, um, we talked a little bit about his own spiritual um, relationship as, um, we talked a little bit about his spiritual relationship where Carver sees himself as this sort of model, this vessel um, through which the beauty of the land can be made tangible and thus shared with um, other rural communities. So I'm thinking, um, you know, a little bit about you know the the embodied knowledge that he mm -hmm. was he was not only practicing but but actively sharing, mm -hmm. and so you know part of the work of the these imaginaries is to give voice to a history that has been ignored or obscured, uh, whether uh, purposefully or through the course of you know, the course of history and transformation. But it also is part of a kind of critique that might be there of these imaginaries, that the imaginaries are tied to a historical place and a historical time. And while they give us a lot of information about what George Washington Carver was seeing and responding to in that moment, how is it that imaginaries might also be, because I think you, you bring this out in the essay, they also have a futural aspect to them. So what is it that allows someone like George Washington Carver to not only speak to the challenges of his time, but how does how does that imaginary help us to to kind of rethink history as something that is constantly recrafted in the present and gives us direction to the future? Right, um, I love that question. And one of the one of the things that first comes to my mind is uh, you know earlier we we're talking about the alternative food movement, mm -hmm. and one of the big things about that movement is you know we're seeing it in Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and you know, is organic food and this farm to table um, living and means of sustainability 
that is seen as, you know, the future of um, the future of, of living, right? And living sustainably, particularly in a world where climate change and um, this quote unquote means of progress that is, you know, taking up land uh, can respond to, right? right? And one of the things for Carver um, that I think speaks very well to the present and the future is Carver was really big on food to table as a means of survival, right? Prioritizing natural farming, right? Taking um, poor land, you know, um, dry land, land that, you know, may not uh, be seen as sustainable, but can still be um, used and manipulated in particular ways um, so that the very poor um, among us, right? Those who are rural, those who are marginalized, who aren't given, um, who aren't given the resources, right? We talked about this farm to table living as very classed, who don't have particular resources and have to do with poor soil, right? And I think in many ways, Carver's food imaginary not only foreshadowed a future and spoke to a particular time, but also I think speaks to um, how we go about moving towards um, caring for land and then caring for bodies as a means of freedom, right? And so mm -hmm. it's not just that we can do farm to table in our backyard in the suburbs and have a really great time. Um, you know, I can bring my tomatoes in for my backyard, right? But how are we sh attempting to share those resources for those who still need it, right? right. Who for those who um, who may not have a backyard, right? I mean, I think here we can think about um, the particular community gardens that are established in um, more uh, built-out areas and big cities. Um, but how can we, like, for instance, just thinking of an example, how can we make those bigger in Carver's food, imagine, food imaginary? How can we make those bigger? How can we, um, you know, put more resources or put more focus on these as necessary? Um, uh, and of course, I think Carver's coming out of a particular tradition where he believed that uh, working with land was a very particular skill yeah. that people needed in order to survive, right? I, I won't go so far to say it's a particular skill that we need to survive, but it is, again, a very intimate way in which we can both heal bodies and heal land, yeah. right? And that's also, uh, you know, I think that's also seen in, in indigenous uh, food studies and scholarship, right? Where we talk about uh, the relationship between bodies and land and how and working with both, healing is also across. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know, while Carver is, is a man of science, it's also you know we see in his in his rich history that it's not just about the science and it's not just about the technology. And that also seems to be a, a central lesson for us moving mm -hmm. forward: is that we're not going to tech our way out of the problems right. of climate change and. Mm -hmm. uh, inequitable food systems that it's it has to be a human investment in new ways right. of seeing our relationship to the land and to food and right. so 
Uh, and this is where, you know, when we think of you know, that, that problem of, of climate change or of our relation to the land as one of the many problems that we're facing now and will face in the future, this is where someone like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer also becomes right. really important in her just profound and, and you know, amazing um, uh, historical uh, legacy. So can mm-hmm. you say a little bit about her and how she highlights, you know, what we might today call some of the uh, you know, biopolitical and social challenges to uh, mm-hmm. opening up and making our food system more equitable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Fannie Lou Hamer, and I'll say quickly for those who don't know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer is a and was a civil rights organizer and activist, and she is the founder of the Freedom Farms Cooperative. Uh, which was created in 1967, and it was this huge. Um, I think it was like about 600 plus acres. I think it's like 680 acres worth of land that included a community garden, um, a pig bank, a tool bank, uh, affordable housing, a sewing cooperative, a commercial kitchen. Like Fannie Lou Hamer was doing all the things with this cooperative. And I believe I quoted her earlier when she said that food is a political weapon. And Hamer was really invested in these uh, very specific forms of Black sustainability that was built around access to food. Um, So food was not only a means of, you know, sustainability and caring and belonging for the folks who run the cooperative, but food um, politically became a means through which um, one can say, I'm not dependent on the state, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not dependent on, uh, you know, white state power and governors in order to give me the very little that they're trying to give me, right? So this is, you know, um, around the time of Jim Crow policies and how uh, with Jim Crow policies, right, they're limiting African-American people's um, access to food and, you know, agricultural land. And so, you know, with Hamer, I really see, and I believe Nora would agree with me on this, that, you know, the um, example of the Freedom Farms Cooperative is really a beautiful example of how we can um, think about political organization today, right? Particularly around food. Um, And I think in the traditions of Hamer, you know, it wasn't just a community garden, right? But it was making sure that folks had housing, right? Mm -hmm. It was making sure that folks had uh, um, education, right? That, you know, you could sew, you could, you had everything that you need um, as far as shared resources, uh, self-sufficiency, dem- democratic decision-making, like that was all done in partnership partnership, and in collaboration with um, a community. Mm-hmm. And I find that a really beautiful way to, re- to imagine, um, you know, what, what is happening and what can happen like today, right? That yeah. food isn't just something that we can enjoy leisurely right but it is a very political um it is a very political act right whether it's through cooking or making available resources right i mean we can think about um the baby food shortage that happened recently we can think about the rising numbers of folks who are houseless right now 
right? Um, the folks who are uh, without shelter and it is over a hundred degrees here in Texas, right? We've had crazy winters, right? So, you know, it's not about, it's not just about food, but food became for Hamer an entrance to care. And how can, I, I think we can use, we again, we can use food imaginaries as a lens to re, redefine what care looks like and how expansive care needs to be in order to provide um, different means, in order to provide different means of uh, provision, I think today. Right. So, so maybe this is a, this is a moment where we can move uh, briefly to the third figure you address, who is mm-hmm. Edna Lewis, because I think it's, you know, when we, when the imaginaries help us to see the, how, how interlaced all of these problems are, the challenge then becomes what's our first step or how do we find a point of contact with those who might not be familiar with this history or familiar with these challenges. So this Mm -hmm. is where I think Edna Lewis's work, particularly uh, kind of like hands-on with cooking and with cookbooks becomes really interesting because Mm -hmm. you mentioned also this idea in the section about her, uh, the idea of attending to the past in order to move forward. So how is it that, you know, we can think in the register of pedagogy here, how is it that cooking becomes this teaching act and this caring act at the same time, maybe through the figure Mm -hmm. of Edna Lewis? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with Edna Lewis, so Edna Lewis is this really amazing historical figure. So chef, author, culinary educator, who is redefining Black, the Black South and Southern food like together. And I find, so what Edna does um, very, I think very practically. So she is able and ends up going to France to do this culinary um, education, right? And I think there are different ways you could talk about that and critique that. But one of the things that she learned um, growing up in Virginia was that cooking um, cooking allows one to reinvent and reinvest in community. And through reinvesting and reinventing uh, in community, uh, whether that be, you know, tweaking a biscuit recipe or tweaking um, a sweet potato pie recipe, Right, that there are different ways that you can play with it while still um, giving ode to those who came before you um, in celebration of those who um, who paved a way for you. Right, and I think with Lewis, she is not only attempting to say these are the roots that we came from, and this is not something that you should be ashamed of, but this is something you can build upon and make. Um, even better in changing environments, right? And I think this is really cool about Edna Lewis is that she is um, adapting a lot of the recipes that she grew up with, a lot of recipes that she learned. She's adapting it to um, changing, you know, a changing society, a changing culture, right? I mean, Edna Lewis is coming up in this time where, um, you know, now quick food, microwavable food, you know, early versions of fast food are coming in, right? Food is supposed to be quick and easy. She's saying, no, let's take our time, right? We can take our time 
and still be healthy with it, right? Uh, we can take our time and still um, celebrate these old recipes, but we can tweak them a little bit um, in response to what you have available to you. If you're, let's say, in New York City, and you know, you're maybe your folks are from the South, and you have this really great recipe, but you know, you don't have a garden in your backyard. You don't have all of these ingredients, but you can still use them. Um, you can still use them to take care of yourself and your family. Right. And one of the, I, I think what Edna Lewis does so wonderfully is say that let's, let's think about the folks who are, you know, and she really focuses on black women. Let's focus on the people who are doing that work, right. Who are on, you know, I think, you know, very gendered expectations, but it's assumed that the women are going to cook, right? And that is being passed down from woman to woman, from mother to daughter. And and the take set and says, let's remember the folks, I'm in a very privileged position, let's remember the women um, who are in charge of taking care of their families and in charge of taking care of community and care for them by it, giving ode to their legacies and what they're doing. Right. And it seems to be also with all the, uh, the sort of, you know, caveats and, and uh, difficulties that come with this, with this kind mm. of work, that's that central feature, right? Uh, if you're going to, you know, lead people to a new understanding, you know, you right. know, that essential moment of meeting them where they are. And it always seems mm -hmm. that the kitchen is a really good place to do that because mm -hmm. it's, it's it's not just a, a gathering place. Oftentimes, it's 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 a place where people have knowledge, uh, mm -hmm. and it becomes a starting point for them gathering new knowledge uh, in right. a certain way. So, as we're getting towards the end of the uh, end of our time, I thought I'd, I'd ask you one last question uh, that has to do with the title of your essay. And in mm -hmm. the title, you have a, a short quote there of. That says, leave no stone unturned. So I was wondering if you could explain why you place that into the title and that, and maybe how that relates to what you see as the future of this particular project, whether it's in uh, addressing other figures or other imaginaries. Right. So we, we got this quote from a, um, I believe it was anthology on Edna Lewis and I think it's called, um, uh, it's by Frances Lamb, and it's an interview with Tony Tipton Martin uh, and her time with Edna Lewis. And basically, Edna Lewis tells uh, Tony Tipton Martin, "Leave no stone unturned." And this is when Tony Tipton Martin was uh, telling her, "You know, I'm interested in." looking at and finding all these very early African-American chefs. And she compiled, she ends up compiling this really beautiful um, text of the earliest, uh, uh, some of the earliest African-American cookbooks and chefs. And Anna Lewis tells her, you know, leave no stone unturned. And Nora and I are really, we're really struck by this statement because it encapsulates the driving force behind this project, right? That there are, particular pieces of history, of knowledge production, specifically um, using food that have not been engaged. And if they have been engaged, have not been taken up by um, scholars, let's say in the alternative food movement, right? Or they haven't necessarily made it to um, mainstream 
uh, America. And not saying that's our goal, right? But when we say leave no stone unturned, we are saying that we we are saying that there are aspects, um, in particular characteristics of food histories and knowledge production that are necessary and still being done. And that it's not only our responsibility, right? Um, and these Black food scholars have done it and continue to do it. Um, but there are other ways beyond just African-American legacies that knowledge production and this very intimate way that knowledge production is being done um, is being, you know, is being left out. So when we say leave no stone unturned, we mean continue the conversation, right? And it's not just us in academia, right? But it, it's these beautiful collectives and community gardens and food justice activists and organizing that's all that, that's being done and should continue, right? And these are things that need to be integrated into um, our scholarship. On the other hand, as I move forward, as my co-author Norma Kendrick moves forward, um, I also take, and I'll speak directly to my research, I also take Leave No Stone Unturned as a particular calling uh, towards um, Black Southern women. And there are other ways in which Black Southern women are sustaining a particular tradition across the South where their bodies um, are very intimately, are creating knowledge very intimately. And my dissertation currently is looking into um, how knowledge production is created through the senses, particularly among Afro-Texan women, right? Through moans, um, through haunting, um, these things that are written upon bodies and are therefore mitigated, um, responded to, uh, played with alongside um, social and cultural occurrences that they have to engage with on a daily basis. Um, so I really love that Leave No Stone Unturned asks us to um, keep going um, and keep imagining and reimagining and reimagining once more how knowledge comes to us, right? Whether it be in these really broad scales, whether it be um, in very ordinary ways to continue to continue that work of the imaginary. It seems it seems a powerful a powerful vocation uh, that we should all be listening for, as there's much much more history left to be left to be told. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I want to thank you, India, for joining us today. Ah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure for me as well. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us in the coming weeks this summer season as we talk with more authors from our newest issue, 22.2. We'll be back next week talking to Indira Arumugam on sun-dried provisions and family ties. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.